Copy Room Conversations is brought to you in partnership with Dirt Path Publishing. What started as a small independent publishing house dedicated to publishing work for social impact now also includes coaching and editing services for writers led by a small and mighty team of former high school teachers. These folks know how to have the hard conversations writers need to have in service to producing their very best work. And they know how to have those hard conversations with love. For more information about coaching and editing services for writers, visit dirtpathpublishing.com. In many ways, Toby and I are the soul sisters of our mutual soul mother, Pam. Pam mentored both of us through the mid-90s, meeting us just where we were and sparking our fire with just what we needed. While I was mired in my inability to properly teach our kids, in addition to any number of other things, a brand new 20-something teacher with undiagnosed anxiety and a drive for unattainable perfection worried about, Toby dared to lead. Diversity initiatives, book adoptions, club advising. She seemed unstoppable. One of my favorite memories of Toby is when she and our friend Sharon danced with the African-American Student Union kids to Mariah Carey's fantasy. I was and am in awe of her. She was the one who invited us to the mob's lunch that first day of professional development in our first year of teaching. While I wanted to, she's the one who made it happen. When Pam invited everyone to Yosemite later that year, she talked me into going. When I wanted to go to a conference, she's the one who sent me the paperwork and then bugged me until I sent it in. She called me in to talk about my propensity to think of myself as a white savior, my propensity to defer to others when my idea was better, how I needed to demand better for myself in my classroom, in my marriage, and in my life. In this episode, you get a glimpse of that fiery young woman, now firmly approaching 50 years old, just like me. She's done extraordinary things in recent years, and my guess is she's just now hitting her stride. She has an ability to strip things down to their essence and present it back to you in a way that makes you think, of course. She's generous, direct, supportive, and like Pam, demands that people in her life live up to their potential. She's taught me more than any other contemporary about what it means to belong to one another and that there's no such thing as other people's children. Uh, What I've told folks is that my pure and full intention with this podcast is to nourish my teacher friends who are so malnourished currently. And I think about the privilege that I've had with all of you and the fact that there is no teaching career for me if it wasn't for all of you. And so one of the best things I can do is be a conduit to bring folks to you and bring you to those folks. So that's my stated intention for our time together is to uh, nourish people with your wisdom. And um, so that's it. That's it. Beautiful. I absolutely love, love, love that intention. And um, collective wisdom, I think, is what keeps this sector, the education sector, if you will, going. It's it's all about our communities, uh, people that get the work. Like so many people don't, can't commiserate in the same way. It's so true. What do you think that, I mean, I know this is off topic, but I'm just curious just if you have a read on 
what's the missing piece for some people when you say some of us get the work and some of us don't? Are you able to articulate yet what that means? You know, not everyone goes around giving medical advice, (laughs) but everyone goes around (laughs) giving advice around teaching or schools and whatnot. And just because you've been through school doesn't make you an expert in education. I think it makes you definitely an expert in giving feedback about how the experience impacted you. But there's not a lot of reverence for the profession as a calling, reverence for the profession in terms of every career that exists, we create and contribute to. Whether we create that exact career directly, we have educated the mind that created the career and that created the new invention, that created the contribution to Forbes. Whatever it looks like, it happened on the backs of educators. And um, our society, I think, just really underplays and undervalues our role and contribution to to children and um, to the creation. Really, what I've been saying is the creation of humanity in so many ways. And this is a little bit of a digression, but I want to just name that I've really been sitting with this problem we have called racism and the power that we have as teachers and as an educational system to, to mitigate the harm of racism in like 20 to 25 years, Nicole. It's like if we dealt with it from K through 12, K into even some post-secondary, people would be more equipped to be more connected, more equipped to even talk about disconnection, more equipped to talk about matters of race. And, you know, a lot of the work that we're doing now is working with adults on how to do this. And I'm like, we contribute in so many ways. If we just gave some focused attention to some of the challenges that we're experiencing as a society with kids, it would almost like we'd outgrow them because the kids would be comfortable. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, to a certain degree, I've seen a significant change just around the issues of gender and sexuality from when we first started teaching in 1995, um, you couldn't say the word gay without a smattering of boys making some sort of joke or dumb comment. Now I think about what our kids are able to do and be and say and explore and think about and learn and read. And that's, you know, in 25 years time. So I, I, I love this idea of outgrowing it. You know, if we, if we committed as a system that this is our goal within this generation of kids. What could we do? You know, what, what, what extraordinary world we could have if we did that. So let's start with um, you as a little girl. And we all kind of bring our own unique lens to the conversation. And I, th- I think at least in part that starts when we're little and our experience with school, we either had a beautiful experience and want to replicate that, or we had a terrible experience and we want to be a part of changing that. And then there's also some interesting questions about how you were raised and, and you know, what you were, 
led to believe about yourself and, and your power. And so I'm just wondering if you could take us back through what experiences brought you to the classroom to, to say to yourself, I want to be a teacher. I mean, you went to, you were a double major at Cal, right? You didn't have to be a teacher. You could have been anything. So, so bring us, help us see your lens and, and bring us up to 1995 when you took that job. Wow. I love that you say that you, you could have been anything. Cause that's what my grandmother said to me, my West Indian grandmother. And she said, you know, you can be more than a teacher. We don't have to do that anymore. So from a ancestral perspective, she was like, you don't have to be a nurse. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a domestic. And that, you know, our family has sacrificed and given you all of this and you can be anything you want to be and you're going to go do what? So, um, you know, not be a lawyer, not be an engineer, not be the news broadcaster I thought I was going to be. And um, for me, I loved school. I really, really loved school. Um, I loved the structure of it. I loved the social aspect. I loved, um, the supplies, the school supplies and the organ and organizing my stuff. So, um, I never thought I was going to be a teacher until I got to UC Berkeley. Um, but let me back up a second because my school experiences were diverse enough that it did impact this one significant event that at UC Berkeley that impacted the trajectory of me going into education. And that was that growing up, I went to really diverse schools in, in prosperous middle-class areas because my mother lied about our address. And she felt like she knew that I was going to only get a better education when I was in a different zip code of where the school was versus where we lived. And I don't think she was wrong to, to some degree. And at the same time, there were times when I couldn't go outside of my zip code to school. And I had to go to a school where things felt less than. And I saw the difference and I recognized the difference even as a child because I had been exposed to the difference. And had I not been exposed to the difference, I probably wouldn't have noticed it. It's kind of like when you say, what do you mean we were poor growing up? Like, you know, when our parents say we were poor and it's like, we didn't feel like we went without. We were loved. We had what we needed. Uh, we didn't necessarily have all the new stuff, but didn't feel poor. And so I fast forward a bit to also going to all white schools and then seeing the difference even more stark there. And so I get to UC Berkeley and. I'm there after graduating from Inglewood High School, and I'm in a Shakespeare class because I had fallen in love with English through the summer program. And there I was, the only Black person in the room of 300 students as a freshman. And the teacher was talking about Shakespeare like it was review. And I had gone my entire education without reading any Shakespeare and made it into UC Berkeley. I'm going to kind of cry because, and I felt in that moment that I had been done such a disservice. And in that moment, I just felt so small and like, fuck, how am I going to be here? How am I going to do this? After believing all my life that I could be there and I could do this, it was in just that moment, so small. 
And it was then that I decided I never wanted, and at that time my lens was, I never wanted a black girl to feel this way again. And little did I know that there were going to be black and brown students and Asian students and and so many of us feeling this way. And even, um, I would say, white kids that didn't go to school in good areas, where we're just all being thought of as not good enough, not smart enough to do real Shakespeare. And I say real Shakespeare because there's knockoff Shakespeare out there. Like we're publishing lessons to teach kids not real Shakespeare. (laughs) And so it was amazing to me to get to San Lorenzo High School as a student teacher connect with Pam Wilson. And oh my God, she taught me Shakespeare so I could teach Shakespeare. And watching her teach Shakespeare the hour before I was supposed to teach it made it so accessible. And I'm like, this is easy. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, everyday English easy, but it's definitely accessible. And it just changed the game. It absolutely changed the game. So there I was learning Shakespeare as a, you know, Cal graduate in ways that I couldn't even access it in that one Shakespeare semester where I really struggled. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of confirms everything you're deeply afraid of, right? That you look around and you say, I don't belong here. That, that to me is, um, that's why I started the work of culturally responsive teaching because I never, ever wanted a child on my watch to go to college and look around and feel like they had to become something else in order to survive. Right. I won't have that, you know, and I, and I think it's not like the teachers you had tried to do that to you. Right. So what do you, you think it's just a lack of knowledge, a lack of skill. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I really believe in my heart of hearts that every teacher wants to do well that we love our kids and we want to do right by them. I just, I can't put my finger on what continues to get in the way. Yeah. I feel like our belief systems get in the way. Our, our belief systems about who we're teaching, some of it stereotypes, some of it bias, and not from a place of, of ill will or ill intent, but truly from a place of, I want to do good. I know I can do good. Let me do good through this profession. And yet there are these cultural blind spots. There are these blind spots to other people's lived experiences that get in the way of doing right by all kids. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. And I think about the kids that I've taught over the years and how much they taught me about that, you know, overtly, um, you know, a mother bringing me to church one weekend to show me that her child uh, shouting out wasn't uh, bad behavior, that it actually was because he loved school and he loved me. Um, and and how many kids I had that really would almost pull me aside and say, look, here's what here's what you need to know. And, you know, as a white woman teaching mostly kids of color, I'm so grateful. They shouldn't have had to do that. And I'm angry at myself that they had to do that. And I also can hold with the other hand how grateful I am that they did, you know? Um, And so when you think about looking back on your experience as a teacher and you think about the students that you've served, what do you have any special lessons that you remember that any of them taught you in particular or in general? Wow. 
um, before I get to that, I just want to also name what, with what you're sitting with. And I love your beautiful hands metaphor that you use. And I don't want to mess it up. So I'm not going to try to go there. But the fact that there was something about you that had connected so deeply with the students that they felt that they could. That they felt that they could come to you with that and could share that with you and see the change, see the difference, see the listening and see the growth. And, and that's the beauty of classrooms created in connection, that we are learning from each other, that we're taking this feedback and, and doing something with it. So I just think that that's really powerful, that whatever, you know, secret sauce that you brought to the table in the spaces that you created, that was part of the gift. Like they knew they could come and share that with you. And, and that just, you know, shows that we're not um, taking in that armor, if you will, to use Brene language, bringing that armor into the space. And, and my students, oh gosh, they taught me a lot. They taught me deep patience, deep compassion. They taught me about, I want to say not sameness, but not difference either. Meaning that everyone is different enough in that you can't do the same with all of them, but they all need so much of the same thing. And, and needing access, needing um, love, needing understanding. So all of these qualities that we need as human connected beings are really what, what they taught me is what we need, even though I look like this and I look like this and, and I'm showing up with this quote unquote sped, a special ed, you know, challenge, whatever it looks like. And, and the true gift I think of solid teachers is being able to teach the same thing three or four different ways. Mm -hmm. At the same time. At the same time. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And and realizing that our kids um, inspire us to get creative in how to do that. And, and, and honoring that creativity. And, you know, it pains me when I see the same recycled lesson that hasn't been changed. I mean, I would even change a lesson from year to year because my kids are different. So, you know, the content of what the, the information is might stay the same because of standards or whatever, but the way that I'm going to go about teaching it, I have to look at who's in my room. It's not the same group of kids. And sometimes it's not even like that from period to period. And the other piece that my kids taught me, make this matter to me. <laughs> and, and I hate to curse on this podcast. Maybe that happens though in the copy room. Make this shit matter, Miss Scruggs. <laughs> like, and so it always had me anchor to is what I'm teaching really valuable and important? Or is it so antiquated that it doesn't matter anymore? Or it's not going to matter to them if I don't show them why it should matter to them. And I think a lot of teachers miss the point thinking, you know, I've got these kids hostage in here and can do whatever I want with them. And they're just going to sit there and be compliant and take in all of my wisdom. When it's like, no, it has to mean something to them. Why are they learning this? Why does this make a difference? I always think about Velcro, right? You have to have the sticky side and the soft side or they don't fit. 
And so if we go in and thinking they're blank slates that we can just paint on, we're, 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 there's nothing that's going to stick. It's going to wash right off, right? Is there, do you have a, a memory of a, of a parent or a caregiver? I have a few different ones. You know, I know a lot of my work is around racial healing and equity work and whatnot. And I'll never forget and this is kind of like um, a backwards lesson <laughs> a little bit. I'll never forget back to school night or no, no, it was report card night, report card night. And a white student, a young white girl, ninth grade came and she was so excited for me to, and this is when I was still student teaching. Actually, I was still student teaching. So there I am at the table with Pam Wilson, and we were actually standing up at this time and not sitting down to meet this girl's father. And she brings him over. She's all excited. I want you to meet my English teacher. I want you to meet my English teacher. And he thinks she's going to introduce him to her favorite teacher, Mrs. Wilson. And she introduces him to her favorite teacher, Miss Scruggs. This young black woman who looked a click older than his daughter, <laughs> just a click, maybe two. And his face just dropped. He wouldn't shake my hand. He actually pulled back the hand that was extended to Mrs. Wilson and pulled his back. And you could tell the girl was embarrassed. She noticed it. And I, 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 sure, I didn't let that get in the way. I assured him. Um, that I was learning with Mrs. Wilson and that she was having the best of both worlds and how well she was doing in the class and what a joy she was to have. I did nothing but just focus on her. That's how I kept my peace in it. Um, the lesson that that parent taught me was that the hate and the biases and everything that we carry is taught. It is explicitly taught. When they walked away, Mrs. Wilson said to me, she obviously didn't tell him who her favorite teacher was before we, they got here. And that's the most that we could say was like, wow, because, you know, no telling what their conversation was like after that. Um, but that was a big aha for me was that our kids are learning these things inside and outside of the classroom. So the power though, that we carry as teachers, when we show up, no matter what we look like, this little girl wasn't believing what she was taught at home because she was getting exposed to the counter narrative. She was getting exposed to something that didn't fit what was being poured into her at home. And so that was a powerful lesson for me um, in that regard. And the other powerful lesson, and I knew this as well, is that our parents all care, no matter what their walk of life is. Um, our Black fathers, our Black mothers, our Latina grandmothers, mothers and fathers, our Asian parents, everybody, they care about their child and their education. And it doesn't look the same for what they are working with to show up all the time and to, and to be in the way that we're like, do they care? Why aren't they here? And, you know, all these judgments we put on parents, they are surviving so many times and, you know, having to work more than one job and having to do so much more than one child 
And uh, we're just worried about this one arena called the classroom. And so that was a huge lesson for me was to not cast judgment on the families, but make it easy for them to support their kids in my class, which made me get really creative, which led to the book parent champion. Like, like what are ways that we empower families in our space? In our space. It's not our job to just be like, you need to get here and, and chastise them. But what do we need to do to, to bring them in and keep them connected as best that they can? It, it requires, what I'm hearing you say, requires a great deal of humility. Um, and also like a very serious bias check about what it means to be a good parent. I remember when you came back as principal, nobody was calling home about anything. And you were trying to get folks to call home. And I could tell you were frustrated. We were in a staff meeting and you were standing up front and you said, they're not being raised by wolves. Call their mom, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I looked around and people were like, oh, shit. <laughs> I just, it's so fascinating to me. And really, I was not good at calling parents myself until I became a parent. And I realized, oh, my God. And I remember I had this one girl who um, she ended up getting a D and this was in the days when you deducted um, grades for tardies and you had so many tardies and then your grade would drop and her grade had dropped to a D. Now, in fairness, she was had a whole lot of stuff going on that wasn't about school. In truth, I needed to call the mom about her tardies and I never did. And the mom showed up at report card night and was like, what the hell is this? Right. You have made it so she can't apply to a four year college. She's a senior. And I was like, oh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What have I done? Because, of course, she's responsible. Her daughter's responsible. Of course, all those things. I didn't do my part. And as a child of a single mother, I should have known better because my mom didn't know what I was doing half the time she was at work. Right. So when I, I think about this notion of parents and families and how we have to enter one with humility and two with owning our part. I know that was a sidetrack, but I just remember that so strongly. And now as a parent feeling so desperate to hear about how my child is, you know, and every parent feels that way. Like you said, every grandparent, every, every, everybody. Yeah. Let's transition and talk about mentorship. We share, uh, I, I call Pam my three F mentor, first favorite and forever. And, uh, we were lucky enough to be raised up by her. Pam was like our soul mother, our, our teacher mother, our, uh, she taught us, you know, just like she does with her kids. She came right to where we were and ushered us along. And so I want to hear from you about your experience with Pam and then also this whole thing we entered, you and I, with the mobs, you know, Pam was telling the story about how they used to go to that little restaurant. I forget what it was even called. Baker like, Square. Baker Square. Yes. And talk about <laughs> things like mustache hair and menopause. And and the first day when you, I remember you said to me, let's go to lunch with them. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And that's so like our relationship, right? You're so audacious and like, yes, of course we are. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> And we went with them and just had such a good time. And we never were not invited again. So 
to just explore this this idea of mentorship with, uh, around them in particular, and then we can talk about other mentors because I know you are a seeker of mentors, um, and I'd like to hear about that. You know, mentoring is oh God, it's it's critical. It's undervalued, underrated. And I don't know where I'd be without the people who have reached back in some way or have taken me under their wing. And Pam, Mrs. Wilson, she is just, and the whole, and the mobs too, just in general. But Pam was my first. <laughs> she, yeah, my first. And I met her as being her student teacher. I was assigned to her. And she just, one is she really took her role seriously as not only a mentor, but a master teacher. And so as she was teaching kids, she was teaching me. The the steps she was using to teach the high schoolers were steps she was using with me. It was it was always a go slow to go fast. There was always an, you know, I do, we do, you do. Like that is just her philosophy. She didn't call it those things, but looking back, that's definitely what it was. She embodies clear as kind. If anybody does that, you know, Pam Wilson will give it to you straight and then some and um, and then hug you after. <laughs> and, um, but I just remember, too, like there were um, there was definitely one key time that I disappointed her and she didn't really have to say anything. She just gave me the look and I knew and it never, ever happened again. <laughs> she just had that way and um I love that she brought her her full life into teaching and into the classroom. I remember as I would watch her teach the lesson that I was to emulate, she'd be sharing some of her stories around her family with kids relating it to the material. Um and you know and and teaching uh, the way she scaffolded the writing process. Like I can just go on and on about like what she taught me technically. And then the things that she taught me that weren't technical besides mustache hair and menopause, I'm a knock to hear that. Thank God. <laughs> but how do we live as teachers? Like how do we embrace the calling of this work as a lifestyle and honor that and still be true to who we are? And, um, find fun in it, find the connection in it, find the joy in it. And, and she really embodies that and um, creating teacher community. She's great at that. And, you know, we had our trips to Wawona and to the cabin as mobs and junior mobs. And those are things that I hope other teacher groups do and, and, and take in as, you know, mentoring weekends or mentoring time together. But this space and, and, and time to just be as teachers in community, as educators in community, learning about not only teaching, but administration, because some of us went into administration. So just the different levels uh, of being connected. And I hope I'm, I'm getting to some of what you wanted to hear. I just, it's just so full. I mean, I don't even know how to take you know, almost 30 years of these relationships and truncate them into um, these vignettes and whatnot, because there's just so many moments and so many memories are just so, so very powerful. And what I can attest to is the fact that we are still connected to these women 
And I, I, I find that they find value and also their life's work being poured into us and being valued and carried forward. You know, Judy came to me and Sharon's private school and, and worked with us on our special ed kids and how to better support them and giving workshops. And she did this just to give, you know, and how do we work better with special ed students and did that professional learning for our teachers. Pam would come and teach doll making during the intercession time because part of her gift is dolls. And so she was teaching kids how to make dolls. And of course, these dolls looked like them. So these were little black dolls. It's like, you know, always that understanding. Without Pam, I don't know that Sharon and I would have forged a relationship we would have forged. Because Pam, it's so funny, a woman raised in the South by parents who she admits didn't necessarily have the most open and inclusive mindsets. And yet Pam connected me with a Black teacher who was older than me at San Lorenzo saying as a young black woman, you, you need a different type of mentor that I can't give you. Like, I didn't even think of that myself as a young black woman. You know what I mean? She was that kind of innovator, if you will. It's innovation, right? Now, this was 1995. This is not like it was 2021. And, and speaking in, uh, let's just sidetrack there for a quick moment, because I think it's important to state explicitly the elephant in the room of so few Black teachers in our schools. And in our staff of 90 plus at our high school, there were three folks, right? Or four. At one point there was four, and then it went to three, and then it went to two. Yeah. Yeah. And after you left, I remember years where there were zero. Zero black teachers. And so when you think about mentorship, you know, it's complicated, right? Because there's lots of reasons educators of color don't come into the system and or why they leave the system, right? And that's complicated and nuanced. And I don't attempt to say that mentorship will solve that problem because it won't. But I do wonder what mentorship does offer, in particular, when you think of teachers of color and how critical they are to our kids and to their colleagues, right? I mean, I, I think about all of the work that we did as a staff that maybe wouldn't have happened if you and Sharon were not on that staff. So can can you speak to that particular piece just for a moment? Absolutely. One is we offer community just to, again, that level of understanding, teacher to teacher, or let's take it a click deeper. Black educator to Black educator. You know, it, there's, a, there's a level of understanding and um, connection that just can't be shared outside of that affinity space. And so that's really important in, in keeping us going and keeping us connected and, and finding the value in being together. Um, I remember when I was principal, even uh, one Black teacher in particular, she would always just come to me and she said, I just need to talk to my Black girl for a minute. You know, I mean, so she could unload on the racism that she may have just experienced with a colleague or, you know, what dynamic is happening. And so that piece is really, really important. Um, I think it's critical to name that when there are very few teachers of color, it means that our students of color are not seeing adult professionals in an educational academic space that look like them and can learn from them. 
And that is a disservice just across the board. It's a disservice to not see your reflection in that way. And so that I think is important to, to name and own um, that that is often problematic. I'm not stating anything new, but I just want to be sure that that gets, gets highlighted. So when I came back as principal, one of the things that I was really proud of, and that we did this, my, my, um, I want to say my third year there and could not have done it without the English department. We did a career day and I had this vision, right? Of this big, huge career day. And they were like, what do you mean the whole day career day? And I'm like, no, we're talking school to career. Our kids need to hear from people in the field. And we had over 70 mentors come and what freaked the staff out was like, well, they were like, well, where are we going to find all these people? I'm like, we're going to find them in our networks. And it was so interesting because I was always um, integrating the equity and inclusion work. It was Sometimes it was more explicit, but it was always integrated. And I said, so this is the thing. Everyone that we bring in has to reflect our demographic group by percentage. And that was another aha moment in that staff meeting. When the, the oh shit look on the faces was like, well, I don't know any Asian professionals. Well, what do you mean? Well, I don't know any black medical people either. I mean, they just started naming who was like missing from who they did business with. Who they took their kids to see as pediatricians and dentists. I mean, it was very illuminating um, on a lot of levels. But that day was so powerful because... We shook the trees, we reached out to our networks, and we got in the whole gamut of like blue collar to the PhDs and bringing in the demographic group. So we had a huge room of mentors there to speak to students. So that also meant, you know, the girls and boy, the gender demographic, the um, ethnic demographic. We were also did our best. We didn't have exact numbers, of course, but we made sure where there's some people who didn't identify as straight or identified as trans. So we really did our best to um, bring in people that were diverse and to, to really have students be able to choose who they were going to see. And it was just, it was really amazing. Amazing. That's such a blessing to be able to look back and think about something you feel really proud of like that, because teaching is so relentless in their, in its expectations. And, um, to be able to look back and say, I did this thing really intentionally and it really served. That's like, Oh God, that's got to feel really powerful. I, I hope that people can take that as an opportunity to think about a time they can look back that they were very intentional and that they, they had a moment. What do you feel like is the hardest thing that you learned in your years in education in our schools? I don't think I got it right. And I'm still trying to figure it out so I can be of support to others. How do we truly make the career sustainable? <laughs> Everybody's tired. Everybody, And I don't mean like pandemic tired and like regular tired. I mean, it's a hard lifestyle in this society before the pandemic. And now it's even more so, but it's like, I felt like in order, I choose my own livelihood 
and joy by absolutely leaving a career I loved. Absolutely. I felt like the exact same way. There is nothing that makes me feel more alive than being in the classroom. Nothing. And yet there was also nothing that drained the life of me more. Where for 20 years, I went to bed at 745 and didn't read a book outside of school. 20 years, right? Yeah, I feel the same way. How do we make that more sustainable? And it's not a simple answer. It's not like, you know, take care of yourself. Take a mental health day. This is a systemic issue. The expectations that we have of our teachers. And two, a running theme as we've gone through these episodes or as I've gone through these episodes is this thing that I don't know if the profession attracts, but we all are struggling with this expectations of ourselves. You know, I'm trying to be perfect. I'm trying to be everything. I'm trying. And I just, it's just not okay. No, no, it's not okay. And there's more, I mean, one, there has to be systemic change. And two, there has to be like leadership change in some ways, like the mindsets of our leaders, like perfectionism doesn't help us. You know, emailing late at night, emailing early in the morning, emailing on the weekends and actually expecting that expectation with those who you serve is not helping. So there's a lot of mindset work that has to be done. But again, when I say systemic, one is salary. I mean, and people say, oh, it's pay. And and some people even say, you know, if we pay you more, it's not going to make you teach better. And I disagree because I believe that if we were paid better, We could get support that we need. We could actually hire for some of the support that we need in our lives to allow us to do our jobs. You know, in other countries, teachers have drivers, teachers have house managers, like teachers have support that allows them to perform, that allows them to do these things. Fascinating. I've never thought about that, but I think about when I was a young mother and a teacher what it would have meant for me to be able to hire someone to clean my house. Oh my God, it would have been a game changer. That's fascinating. I have never thought about that, that it buys certain freedoms in other areas so that we can be the thing that the profession currently demands. Even like a new position, like I want a night duty position, someone who wants to go to games and work nights and do all that. I mean, as a principal... We had, you know, 270 something days in the school year, whatever it is, something crazy. And I worked one year, I worked 193 nights and was still expected to be back early in the morning after working at night. And mind you, that wasn't even all the night duties. I had three assistant principals to balance it all with. But that's the type of, I mean, are we really expecting this from an instructional leader? I'm supposed to be an instructional leader and you want me to sit at the game three to four nights a week for three to four hours at a time to then focus on instruction after I've just been through athletics for 20 hours that week. I mean, it's just, it's not a clear balance. And so there are things again, where I'm like, why can't someone be in charge of of the night games and night duties? That doesn't have to be an administrator necessarily. It doesn't have to be. These are just antiquated ways. Exactly. Being a whole separate job. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I mean, at some point we'll do a season on um, just innovating with new ideas. 
like that, right? Like the idea of, you know what, we're going to hire a night duty supervisor and they're going to know the kids and the families and all the things that the principal would have done sitting in the stands, that person's going to be that person. They'll start their job at 3 p.m. and end at 10 p.m. and that's their job. Like, why has no one thought of that before? Hello? And I'm even willing to even venture even further. Like if you have to have this other type of admin on campus at all, then let me be in my office doing instructional leadership things. Like let me be planning the PD. Let me be coordinating. Let me be doing and I'll be on call. I can just walk down to the gym. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're definitely going to have this conversation. So we're going to pause this right here and then pick that back up. Um, Let's go back to just thinking about, I am asking three questions to everybody. One is what's your hype song? Because I think that's really music is a part of who we are, right? So what's your hype song for teaching? That's one. The second one is your quick tip takeaway for the copy room right? We're in the copy room. I'm cutting, you're punching holes. Someone's running the machine. What, what do you want to leave us with as we exit for our day? So let's start with those two and then I'll wrap up. My hype song currently, and of course it's by India Ari because she's my hype chick. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. No more coulda, woulda, shoulda. Yep. That's the one. That's the one. So that one and my my words of wisdom in the copy room, the quick tip is what? Oh, I think I have two really. One is tell your kids how much you love them and care about them. Just drop that seed. You know, don't have to make it a big old soliloquy or speech, but just, you know, in the words of Les Brown, whoever it was, if no one has told you today, I'm going to tell you today. I absolutely love you and care about you. So remember to tell our kids that. and. If you don't make it through your lesson plan, it's okay. We want them to learn it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. It's learning, not coverage. It's learning. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) That's good. That's good. All right. So the last one is thinking about, you know, I think all of society's challenges really come down to the notion that we've all been born with our own unique puzzle piece to put on the table with the collective and think together about how we're going to live into our gifts to make this puzzle pieces whole, right? There's not one bullet. There's not one program. There's not one consultant. We all have to lay our puzzle pieces down. So part of why I ask this question is I really want people to think what their piece is. What is, what is your piece? So I ask this of you because I know how intentional you are. What is you, what is your piece? What is your gift that you bring to the conversation to help us be whole? I really feel that my, my gift is, is walking the talk of looking at ourselves and supporting others and looking at ourselves into who we bring into the classroom. Who do we bring into the classroom that like blesses the space and serves the space, but maybe doesn't serve the space and needs to be addressed? It's looking, it's doing that personal work that I know you value as well. And so you understand what I'm saying, but that inner work that we have to do to make us better with others, walking that talk, reminding people of it. And then because we're teachers at heart, we've stayed in teaching, but just with the big kids, with the adults (laughs) and, and, and offering that as a, as a vehicle 
to doing what they love better because no one wants to show up at work and suck. No, nobody wants that. I feel like the general public does not understand. No one got into teaching to be bad, right? Yeah, I, you know, it, it brings me back to the metaphor that you referenced earlier in our, in our conversation that I always say God gave us two hands to hold us two truths. And one hand are the blessings that we bring and the gifts that we bring. And in the other hand are the things that we need to work on. And they're always both. There's never one. So thank you. Thank you for being here with me today. Thank you for being my friend for 30 years. I love you. I love you. I love you, love you, love you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for being who you are in my life. All the things I'm missing, you are. And um, all the things that I am, you're more of. Thank you for sharing your precious time with us. My hope is it gave you some respite from your worries and some time to remember that we belong to one another and that there's no such thing as other people's children. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. These three things make a big difference in our ability to connect teachers to one another in service to each other and our kids. We also want to thank Dirt Path Publishing for partnering with us on this podcast. The mission of Dirt Path is to publish work for social good. They are proud to include copy room conversations under that banner. For more information on coaching and editing services, or if you have a book you want to publish that you know will serve the greater good, visit dirtpathpublishing.com.